Today is January 18th. This is Verses in Flow. I'm Jennifer Wainwright, and I am so happy to be here with you today on this Wednesday as we prepare to explore more of God's Word. One quick note, we're not going to cover any stories of assault today. However, there is some content, sexual in nature, that is a bit more descriptive than may be appropriate for young listeners. So just keep that in mind as we're moving along. You'll know it's coming up when you hear me start talking about Tamar. I think it's kind of wild that we have to give disclaimers and listener ratings for the Bible too, but it is what it is. So before we begin our reading today, I want to share a text conversation that I was having with a dear friend yesterday. She's been listening to the podcast, and I'm going to read to you what she said. She said, I didn't realize how informed and wise you were on unpacking scripture. I can read it for myself, but I'm incapable of expounding and reading between the lines, LOL. I responded back to her by saying, the interesting thing is, I didn't know this either. But the truth about it is, I've never actually tried to interact with scripture the way that I am now. Before, I would read or listen to the Bible to learn and do, but not really to see and feel. My approach to understanding the word has changed, and that has affected how I'm able to interpret and communicate about it. Now, when I said to her that I didn't approach the word to see and feel, I didn't mean that I'd never experienced those things. What I meant was that seeing and feeling was more of a serendipitous benefit of the first approach. Serendipity meaning happening or finding things by accident. I share this because I wonder how many people have approached scripture in the same way and what are the implications on our ability to truly internalize and interact with the word the way it was intended if our reading of it is based solely on learning and doing, what if it's not an either-or strategy, but a both-and? Perhaps we should read and listen to the Word so that we can see, hear, feel, learn, then do. And on that point about listening to the Word, Was it incidental that Paul writes in Romans, faith comes by hearing the word of God? Perhaps reading is implicit there. However, hearing is explicit. He uses that word. He uses the term hearing, and deeper study reveals that hearing in the Greek means paying attention to, listening, understanding. I think that there is something very transcendent about the spoken word of God about the preached word of God, according to Romans 10, 14 through 18. Further, most of the Old Testament was written after the events occurred. And in the first century, the oral tradition was the primary way the word of God was spread. As the Bible as we know it, obviously had not been canonized yet. It took about 1500 years for the Bible to be completed with over 40 authors living on three different continents, obviously at different times, and that's with 400 years of sacred silence between the Old and the New Testament. I'm saying that to say, scripture itself was breathed and inspired by God. The writers had to hear it from God himself 
before they could even write it down for others to later be able to read, reference, and remember. I think that is a very compelling case for why it's important that we ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear His Word. I also think it's a compelling case for why we should write things down when we hear God speaking to us so that His words are not wasted or forgotten later. It's why I often ask here in my prayers for God to reveal specifically what it is He wants us to know and how He wants us to apply it to speak to us and through us, that we don't just read or hear it and think, oh, that's interesting, but rather, oh, this is me. This story is about me. This word is for me today. It's so that we feel these ancient stories and instructions and the sinews of our muscles and the marrow of our bones and the breath of our lungs, the cells of our minds, the beat of our hearts, and the seat of our souls. And so with this in mind, let's get ready to get into this word. Or even better, let's get ready for this word to get into us. Genesis chapters 37 and 38, New International Version, Joseph's Dreams. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph sold by his brothers. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, 
a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Judah and Tamar. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Harah. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, 
and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Horah, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal in its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. 
Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 45. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. The Sign of Jonah Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. 
Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 32. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you, when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways, for the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. So once again, in today's reading, we have stories that are layered and rich with meaning, and there are lots of different perspectives and angles that we can explore and, and pick apart and unpack. But for today, I want to talk about Judah and Tamar. And I feel no need to rush through to give a commentary every single day about the stories that we cover for that day, particularly because we have an entire year together. So we'll definitely unpack and continue to walk through some of the other stories when we don't get to them the same day that we read them. But for today, we're going to focus in on this story about Judah and Tamar. So this part of the story begins when Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, instructs his oldest son, Ur, to marry Tamar. Unfortunately, Ur dies because of his wickedness. And then Judah's second son, Onan, is instructed to marry Tamar. As this was the custom of the day, when one man died, if he had a brother, this brother would then marry the widow. The first son born from this marriage then would legally belong to the deceased older brother, providing him an heir and preserving his name. Onan, the brother in line for this task, was fine with taking Tamar as his wife, but because he knew that any children born of their union wouldn't technically be his, he did everything he had to do to not get her pregnant. In other words, he pulled out, 
and was using Tamar for sexual gratification, but not accepting his responsibility to her and his brother. God was not pleased with this, and so he puts Onan to death too. Judah is then reluctant to give his third son, Shalah, to Tamar once he becomes of age, even though that's what he's supposed to do. And so Tamar, realizing that once Shalah does become of age and Judah has not presented her to him to marry, she takes matters into her own hands. After all, this was the only way that she could secure her future. She had to have kids in order to have an inheritance. So she took off her widow's clothes and she disguised herself as a prostitute when she learned that Judah will be coming into that part of the city to shear some sheep with a friend. Judah takes the bait, hook, line, and sinker. He sleeps with her, but only after she tells him that he has to pay, as that's how prostitution works. The problem is, he agrees to pay her with a goat that he doesn't have with him. But she says, that's cool. I need collateral, though, until you come back with the goat. Judah, who believes that all he's doing is paying for her services, gives her his signet, cord, and staff to hold until he comes back with this goat. This was the equivalent of him just handing over his driver's license and credit cards as this was his identifying information. Now, Judah sends his friend to get his stuff back from the woman he thought was a prostitute once, you know, his business is done and, and he catches back up with his friend. But of course, when the friend goes back to find her, she wasn't there. The friend asks the men who live there, where's the shine prostitute who was beside the road at Enium? And they say, no prostitute has been here. So the friend goes back to Judah and says, I didn't find her, and the men said that there hasn't been any prostitute there. Then Judah, concerned about how foolish he would look, seeing that he was outwitted by both a woman and a prostitute, no less, says, well, let's just let her keep it, or we'll become a laughingstock. Now, three months later, Judah's told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, Judah, you're going to have her burned for being a prostitute, but you're okay with sleeping with one? Oh, okay, that's what we're doing. Now, Tamar might have had one of the greatest clapbacks in the Bible, or maybe it's poetic justice, I don't know. Either way, the irony here is as thick as a brick because as she was being dragged to her demise, she sends a message to her father-in-law. Yeah, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she adds, do you recognize these? And bloop, she got them. Judah recognized his belongings immediately. He has a moment of clarity and he does own his hypocrisy. There is one more note I want to share about this story that shows up in the Life Application Bible. It says, and I quote, When Tamar revealed she was pregnant, Judah, not knowing that he was the father, moved to have her killed. He'd hidden his own sin, but came down harshly on Tamar. Often, the sins we try to cover up are the ones that anger us most when we see them in others. 
If you become indignant at the sins of others, you may have a similar tendency to sin that you don't wish to face. When we admit our sins and ask God to forgive us, forgiving others becomes easier. End quote. Do whatever you want to do with that. We, as the church, myself included, are imperfect. And sometimes in our haste to be holy or to demand holiness from others, we fall into the trap of hypocrisy and hurt others in the process. We forget that we are called to be a reflection of God's love and grace. And that just like Jesus told the people to let he who is without sin cast the first stone when they wanted to kill the woman caught in adultery, we too are sinners in need of a savior. So before we condemn, maybe we should check our intentions, consider the long-term harm we might cause if we are not measured in our methods of accountability and discipline. Like some of you listening, I have been in church all my life. I know well the God of judgment and vengeance. I know that God is a consuming fire and that hell is real. But God is also a God of love, mercy, grace, and compassion. And I think in some of our institutions, that part of the message is somehow lost after we get saved. In closing, there's one other plot twist I want to point out. Jesus descends from this lineage. Tamar, the one who deceived her father-in-law into sleeping with her and getting her pregnant, is a link in the ancestral line that God uses to redeem humanity. Her name is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, right alongside Judas. They had twins, one of them named Perez, and through Perez's progeny, Jesus is born. I just love the way God continues to include the names and stories of women in scripture in these significant moments, even though we are often sidelined in other places where we belong. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for being our refuge and our strength and for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we'll be more aware of how we treat each other both inside and outside of the walls of the church. Help us to be humble. I pray that we'll hear the cries of those who have been hurt and know how to give them the space that they need to heal. I pray that we'll have open hearts and minds when it comes to learning your word and distilling your wisdom and your will from it. I pray that we'll have the objectivity and the openness to listen and to learn from one another's stories. Please help us as a community to look out for one another, to be more aware, more conscious of the ways that we have hurt each other or failed to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to be better. We want to be better. We want to be more like you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a heart to hear a heart to feel. Continue to speak to us and through us. We love you so much.
and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And our affirmation, I am forgiven, I am free, and God has great plans for me. I am forgiven, I am free, and God has great plans for me. And our aphorism, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. That's all I have for you today. You belong here and we belong together on this journey. I'll be here tomorrow waiting for you.